In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We'll study today Psalm 106. This psalm has no title, so its author is unknown. However, according to most scholars, this psalm is written by the author of Psalm 104 and 105. Accordingly, they attributed to Prophet David. The occasion on which it was composed cannot be ascertained. But those who attributed to David think that it was written at the time of bringing up the Ark of Covenant to Zion. Its first verse and last two verses are to be found in the, in the song which delivered by David to Asaph when he brought up the Ark of the Lord. As you read in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34, 35, 36, you will find the first verse and the last two verses. Other scholars said it is a prayer of the captives in Babylon who acknowledge the mercies of God and confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers and beseech the Lord to gather them from among the heathen and restore them to their own country. So they said it's not written by David but the people during the Babylonian captivity. However, David, maybe he wrote it in a prophetic way, in a prophecy about what will happen in the future and the future captives. And he represented the future captives in their repentance and prayer for restoration back to Jerusalem. It is one of four historical psalms, psalms that mention history, like Psalm 78, 105, 106, and 136. 136 is the second host in the, in the Midnight Praises. In these psalms, referring to the history of the Israelites, and by mentioning the history, they gain lessons of instruction, guidance, gratitude, and praise from that history. Psalm 105 and 106 are connected. There is a covenant between God and people. 105 speaks about God's faithfulness and power. He was faithful in the covenant with the people. Psalm 106 tells the sad story of repeated failure and rebellion of his people. Actually from 103, 103 praising God for what he has done to me personally. 104 praising God to what he has done in the creation. 105 praising God for his faithfulness with Israel. 106 confessing the rebellion 
of the Israelites. It's a national confession which includes an acknowledgement of Israel's transgressions with devout petition for forgiveness. They were asking forgiveness from God. In many areas in the Old Testament, we find similar confession. Like in Nehemiah chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, in Baruch chapter 2. Also, this is the first psalm that begins and ends with Alleluia. Many psalms end by Alleluia. But this is the first psalm that begins and ends with Alleluia. Alleluia, Hallelu, means praise. Ya Jehovah, the Lord. So Alleluia literally means praise the Lord. And it is the first of the Alleluia psalms. The Alleluia Psalms are 111, 113, 117, 135, and 146 to 150. This Psalm is 48 verses. From 1 to 5, praise and prayer. From 6 to 39, confessing Israel's sin and need for God's mercy. 40 to 42, God's judgments. 43 to 46, God's mercy, and 47 to 48, prayer for their restoration. We'll take half of the psalm today. So let's start from verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. From verse 1 to verse 3, David introduces this psalm of repentance, in which he exhorts all who have experienced the mercies of the Lord to declare his praise. So he's saying, you who experienced the mercies of God, praise him, give glory to God, why? Because God is truly good. He is merciful. And His mercy endures forever. Which means His mercy never fails. According to Chronicles, the first verse was used at the dedication of David's tabernacle. And again at the dedication of the temple as we read in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 30. Even in their greatest afflictions, the Israelites were bound to give thanks to God. We also, even when we go through difficult time, we are bound to give glory to God. Because His mercies always, always exceeds His punishment. So even if I am chastised by the Lord, or I am disciplined by the Lord, but His mercy usually and always exceeds the discipline or the punishment of the Lord. St. Augustine often says that the word praise is translated confess. بالعربي احنا نقول اعترفوا للرب او اشكروا ربنا. 
Confess means whether man confesses his own sins or confesses the mercies of God. And St. Jerome says, the psalmist also say in Psalm 6 verse 5, in grief who will give you thanks? It is impossible for anyone in the grave to show remorse on his sins. So as long as you are still in the world, I beg you to repent. Confess and give thanks to the Lord, for he is only merciful in this world. Here he may show compassion on the repentant, but there he will be the judge. I say all that for the benefit of those who assume that there will be a chance for remorse in hell. So, in grief, who can give thanks to God? We need to repent while we are still here on earth. Oh, give thanks. There is a sense of pleading, as if David is pleading with the people, please give thanks. As if David was desperate to draw great gratitude from himself and from God's people, especially in the light of God's goodness, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. But in the midst of his praise, David recognizes that his praise was not enough. Why? In verse 2, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? If you reflect on the mighty acts of the Lord, they are plentiful. So who can declare all his praise? God's mighty acts are so many that they are beyond description. And because of this, who can fully declare all his praise? Who can find the language which will suitably express what God has done? No human voice can adequately celebrate God's mighty act or worthily proclaim his praise. As we say in the fraction, I thank you, O Lord, and all the angels and all the creation thank you on my behalf because I fall short to give you thanksgiving according to the multitude of your love and mercy. Then, in verse 3, from the thought of mercy, in verse 1, and the might of God, in verse 2, which are the ground of Israel's hope, because our God is merciful and mighty. Because he is mighty and merciful and good, this gives us hope. So David goes to the conditions of participation in the blessing for which he looks. God is good. God is mighty. God is merciful. So how can we participate in these blessings that we are hoping for? That's why in verse 3 he said, Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Happy are those who obey the divine command. Those who walk in obedience to God, 
those who keep justice and does righteousness. These people do their part in declaring God's praise. So when I walk according to his commandment, righteously, actually I am glorifying God. And he said, at all times, who does righteousness at all times. Righteousness, what is right? That's righteousness. Who does what is right at all times. Continually believe in Christ for righteousness and puts on that his righteousness as his justifying righteousness whereby he become righteous. Let me explain this. Who among us can do right all the time? Anyone? No one. So no one can do right all the time. The only one who actually did right all the time is Christ. So if I want to be righteous, I need to put on Christ, to hide in Christ. First time in baptism, you who are baptized, you put on Christ. So in Christ, I die, and then I put on Christ. Then I am righteous. Not because I did what is right, but because I'm hiding in Christ. After baptism, every time I do something wrong, I confess my sin, repent, take communion. Then I am righteous again because I'm united with Christ in communion. I'm one with Christ. That is his righteousness. If I am putting on his righteousness, his justifying righteousness, I will be righteous as he is. Doing righteousness at all times could never be fulfilled except in Christ. Because Christ is alone without sin. So whoever covers himself by Christ will be righteous. Because Christ covered us by himself. We hide in him and would become for us righteousness and redemption. That's why scholar Origen said, the virtue is Christ. Whoever acquires Christ in himself acquires virtue and bears the features of the Lord Christ. Those who keep the commandment and do righteousness all the time, according to St. Augustine, they are called the blessed. Those who keep justice, truth, in faith and practice righteousness by work. Faith means to keep the truth, justice. Work to do what's right, righteousness. Now, after David spoke about the goodness of God and his mercies and his might, and how we participate in the hope and in the graces. So with this preface and foundation of praise, David felt the door was open to ask God for help. That's why in verse 4 he said, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation. 
He knew that forgot to remember us means to stir his compassion, compassionate action. When we say God remember me, what does this mean? Be compassionate on me. And we ask God to visit us with his salvation. Visit us with your salvation. Means visit, come with your salvation. Bringing deliverance to us from the present trouble. Remember me, O Lord. The same prayer was prayed by Nehemiah. And also this was the cry out of the repentant right hand thief on the cross. Remember me, O Lord. The thief on the cross, he said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he immediately received forgiveness. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me with your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation. This prayer either of the coming of Christ, visit us with your salvation, can be a prophecy about the incarnation of the Son of God. The salvation of God that was promised and expected in the Old Testament. Or spiritual salvation, asking God to come to our heart, to visit me in my salvation, deliver me from sin, deliver me from the bondage of enemy. Then in verse 5 he said, When you visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones. Number one, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. Number three, that I may glory with your inheritance. So when you remember me, and when you visit me with your salvation, I will take the privileges of the chosen one. I will rejoice with the gladness of your people, of your nation. And also I will glorify with your inheritance. In verse 5, David gives us three reasons why he is asking God to remember him and to visit him with his salvation. Each one of these three reasons concerned with the honor of God. The first one, I may receive the benefit of your chosen ones, that he may possess and enjoy the same favor, same grace, same benefit which your chosen ones do. The second is to be partaker in their joy. He wants to share in the joy with God's blessed and redeemed people. And the third one, to glory with God's inheritance. He would have a part and a lot in their honor as well as their joy. He wants to be part of God's victory and the victory of his people. So David asked God to count him as one of his chosen, to grace him with the goodness of the membership in the exultant church and the cherishment of the heritage prepared for him in heaven. That's the three things. To be counted and to receive privileges and benefit of the chosen one. And to rejoice with them and to inherit with them. God's people here 
are called the chosen, his chosen ones, his nation, his inheritance. Because God has set us apart for himself and we were purchased by his blood. So we are his chosen ones, we are his nation, we are his inheritance. And the people of God glory not in themselves, but we glory in Christ and in his righteousness. David desires to join with them and glory in what they did and in no other. David wants to glory with the chosen one, with the nation of God, with the inheritance of God. And unite with them in giving glory to God and giving glory to Christ for his salvation and all the good things that he has done for him. David sought not the glory of the world, but the glory of being a friend of God, of partaking of that which God bestows on his people. That is the real glory when we partake in what God actually granted his people. Starting from verse 6, David will start this national confession. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. So David now begins his main subject of Psalm 106. The transgressions of Israel in the past. And God's manifold mercies given to them. Israel transgressed against God. In return, God was so merciful toward them. This psalm mainly focuses on the repeated failure of Israel through their history. Psalm 5 focused on the faithfulness of God toward Israel. David did not see failure as something only of Israel past. But even he identified his present generation. That's why he said, we have sinned with our fathers. So currently, in our time, our generation sinned like our fathers sinned. He identified his present generation with Israel of old, connected in their sins, their iniquities, and their wicked deeds. And this is a remarkably humble and straightforward confession of sin. And the confession is as broad as general as possible, including all under sin. We have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Committed iniquity and done wickedly to express that they had committed all manners of sins. The confession and acknowledgement that they don't deserve the mercy for which they pray is the primary condition of forgiveness and restoration to God's people. So when we come to God confessing our sins and we admit we are not worthy of the mercies of God, then we will receive forgiveness and restoration of God's grace. This confession is very similar to the confession that Daniel made in the land of captivity. As we read in Daniel 9, 
verse 5 we have sinned and committed iniquity we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgment also Nehemiah in chapter 1 verse 6 and 7 he made similar confession both my father's house and I have sinned we have acted very corruptly against you verse 7 our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders the ten plagues they did not understand they did not remember the multitude of your mercies but rebelled by the sea the Red Sea despite of all the wonders that God did with his old people yet they did not understand they did not remember the multitude of the mercies of God they often rebelled against God as well as against Moses his prophet and Aaron the priest these wonders that were done in Egypt in their sight they saw them with their eyes but unfortunately they did not see it with their spirit because they had no heart to perceive them they did not understand the true purpose of these miracles that God performed in Egypt not only that these were for the destruction of the enemies so the ten plagues not only just for the destruction of the enemies and for the deliverance of the Israelites but a main goal of these wonders that they are proofs of the power of God and of his being the only one and true God not like the idols of the Egyptians and he only ought to be worshipped and trusted in not the idols of the Egyptians and let's ask ourselves how many of God's wonders are not understood by us or unvalued by us until now the Israelites responded to God's great deliverance from Egypt with ingratitude and rebellion at the Red Sea they said to Moses are the tombs in Egypt not enough that's why you brought us here to kill us here in the wilderness so they rebuilt by the Red Sea nevertheless in spite of their ingratitude he saved them not because they are worthy but for his name's sake because of the covenant that he made that he might make his mighty power known so despite all that nevertheless God answered with rescue so they rebelled against him but God rescued them for his name's sake not for Israel's sakes or their worthiness their conduct would have justified God in taking them at their word and leaving them to return back to Egypt they wanted to go back to Egypt to the captivity 
God did not tell them, okay, that's what you want, go back. But for his name's sake, in order to uphold his character as God of mercy, and to make known his might to the nations of the earth, that's why he delivered them. To make his mighty power known, not only to the Israelites, but among the nations of the world. If God had not saved them, the nation might have thought the the Gentiles and said that it was for desire of power and God could not do it. God failed to deliver his people as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 28. Lest the land from which you brought us should say because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them and because he hated them he has brought us them out to kill them in the wilderness. Verse 9 He rebuked the Red Sea also and it dried up. So he led them through the depth as through the wilderness. He rebuked the Red Sea by sending a strong east wind which drove the waters back and made the sea a dry land. He rebuked the Red Sea because the Red Sea was standing in their way and hindering their crossing. That's why when God rebuked the Red Sea, it was dried up immediately. And they passed over the bottom of the Red Sea as if it had been dry land of the desert. He saved them, verse 10, from the hand of him, Pharaoh, who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. I want you to notice that the Israelites were all on foot and the Egyptians had chariot and horses. So what do we expect? That the Egyptians were likely to overtake them quickly. But God saved them from the hand of him that hated them. Pharaoh, whose hatred had been shown by his oppression. Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea and the Israelites were never threatened by him again. St. Augustine says, what price was given in this redemption? Is it a prophecy? Since this deed was a figure of baptism, St. Paul spoke about crossing the Red Sea is a figure of baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 figure of baptism wherein we are redeemed from the hand of the devil at a great price, which price is the blood of Christ. Whence this is more consistently figured forth, not by any sea indiscriminately, but by the red sea, since blood has a red color. St. Augustine is saying, why the Red Sea? The Red is a color of the blood to remind us 
that God actually redeemed us by His blood. That is the cost, that is the price for this redemption. Not gold, silver, or precious stone, but His blood. Verse 11 The waters covered their enemies, the Egyptians. There was not one of them left. Not one of them left. So the Egyptians pursued the Israelites into the sea. But the water returned and covered Pharaoh and all his host and drowned them. Not one of them left. This is a symbol of the complete destruction of all our spiritual enemies by Christ. So Christ has not only saved us from our enemies, but has entirely destroyed them. As we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christ prevailed over Satan, sin and death. As we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, Christ, has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So in this passage we see how Christ prevailed over Satan, over sin, and over death. Also, destruction of Pharaoh and all the chariots, it's a representation of the destruction of the wicked at the last day. As we read in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch, completely uprooted. Verse 12, Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. After the destruction of Pharaoh, they believed the word of God and they chanted, let us sing to the Lord, for with glory he is glorified. Exodus chapter 15, which is the first verse. There were times Israel trusted God's word and praised him in song, like Exodus 15. But they believed when? upon seeing the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and not before seeing it. There was not one of them left. After they saw all the Egyptians dead, then they believed. So this is mentioned to their shame, to show the slowness of their hearts to believe. They did not believe before God killing the Egyptians, but after they were killed 
and there was not one of them left. So Israel moved quickly from faith and celebration of God's work, Exodus 15, they sang his praise. After this, they moved quickly to ingratitude and disobedience. They soon forgot his works. As we read in verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They had gone only three days' journey from the Red Sea, and they murmured for water. After three days. Then, six weeks later, they murmured for food. And again in Rafadim, they murmured for water. Again. So in their unfaithful impatience, they refused to wait for God's counsel or God's plan of providing for their needs. Their lust after physical material things, when they lust after meat, they lusted exceedingly. This was an important factor in this. As we read in verse 14, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. What does it mean, tested God? Israelites tested God with their unbelief regarding his ability to provide for their needs in the wilderness. Let us see, can God provide for our needs in the wilderness or not? So David put an emphasis on the place in the wilderness where all this was done, the wilderness or the desert, where God had done such great things for them and where they could not help themselves because in the wilderness nobody can help himself, but were wholly and immediately dependent on God. But God gave the Israelites the meat they craved for, as we read in verse 15, and he gave them the request, but sent leanness into their soul. With the meat, there was associated curse, not because they asked for food, but because they grumbled and membered against God, and what they wanted became something bad they became weak in their souls, sent leanness into their soul. Verse 16, when they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron the saint of the Lord. The prodigal son and Lot are two other examples of those who received what they wanted. They asked and received what they wanted, but it was for their destruction as Israelites asked for me, but it was to their curse. Now, David passes to the sin of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram with their followers. This sin was the envy or jealousy of the high position assigned by God himself to Moses and Aaron. Korah believed that Moses and Aaron were arrogant and proud accusing them, as we read in Numbers 16, verse 3, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them 
the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Why he called Aaron the saint of the Lord? In verse 16, saint means separated for the ministry of the Lord, the Holy One of God, especially set apart and consecrated to his service, and he was God's appointed high priest. You know, Korah by himself, only Korah, rebelled against Moses, envied Moses and Aaron, not his children. But Dathan and Abiram with their children. Dathan and Abiram were from the tribe of Raubin. Korah was from the tribe of Levi. Dathan and Abiram rebelled and envied Moses because Raubin was the first son of Jacob. So they said, we should be the priests. Raubin is the firstborn son. He did not respect God's calling. And Korah, by himself, rebelled and envied Moses and Aaron. And there were 250 persons from the tribe of Levi followed Korah. Not his children by, by flesh, but from the Levites. So what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed the sand and covered the faction of Abiram. When the earth was opened, Dathan and his family, Abiram and his family, and Korah as one person, they were swallowed by the earth. But the sons of Korah were spared, but the 250 Levites that took censers and started to raise incense, Fire came from the tabernacle of meeting and devoured them. They were not swallowed, but they were be devoured by fire. So the earth opened up and swallowed the fan. This was a new, marvelous, and unheard of thing, and which manifestly showed the divine displeasure with what they said about Moses and Aaron, and served greatly to confirm the authority that God gave to Moses and Aaron. But Korah is not mentioned in this psalm. Through the earth swallowed him up as a person. And all that belonged to Dathan and Abiram. Why? Because God extended his mercy to his household. And his sons were not swallowed up. But later on they became among the singers in the tabernacle of meeting. That's why it was not mentioned in Psalm 106, only the Than and Abiram. Number chapter 16, 35, describe fire that consumed 250 men who also conspired with Korah. Verse 18, that is a fire. A fire was kindled in their company for the 250. The flame burned up the wicked. The flame burned up the wicked. Then, verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Why he mentioned Horeb here? Because Horeb is the mountain of God. 
So there is a special stress on the words Imhuri as referring to the very place where the great manifestation of God's power and presence had been made and where the law was given to Moses and the very first words of the law was prohibition of the sin of idolatry. But in Hurib actually they made this calf and worship. They limited and materialized and degraded the idea of deity in disobedience of the commandment, the first commandment which God had given them. And this sin of ingratitude, unbelief, idolatry and immorality is recorded in Exodus chapter 32. Verse 20, and after he said in verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. I want you to notice he did not say they changed the glory of God, but he said they changed their glory, their glory, not the glory of God. Because Israel's idolatry with the golden calf did not actually dishonor God. It degraded them, not God. Because they lowered themselves to be the creatures and the servant of a man-made beast. The Jews carried with them from Egypt a hidden desire for idol worshipping. And they found in the absence of Moses a chance to fulfill this desire. And St. Paul quoted from the Septuagint translation of this verse, verse 20 from Psalm 106, and he used it in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, as a strong accusation against idolaters of all kind, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It is the sin of a heart that is not watered by the Holy Spirit, turned from heavenly things to carnal ones. Instead of knowing that our citizenship in heaven, we desire carnal lusts, and we change our glory from the promise of divine inheritance to gratification of the flesh. Some commentators say that the Jews themselves repeated this sin at the Calvary when they rejected their glory, how when they rejected Christ and chose Barabbas instead of Christ. So their sin was not only a sin of idolatry and immorality, but also sin of ingratitude to God. That's why in verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So the God who did great things, wonders, works, and awesome things in bringing them out of Egypt was disregarded in their praise of the golden calf. Not only forgot the works of God, but they forgot God himself, as if there is no God. They forgot God 
their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, Egypt, awesome things by the Red Sea. They not merely failed in gratitude, but were unable to retain such a striking and important event in their memory. They forgot all these wonderful works. God in Egypt had overcome all the idols, yet they forgot God as to liken him to them. And they likened God to these idols. Could a golden calf cast the plagues upon Israel's enemies? Definitely not. But they forgot God. They have seen what the true God could really achieve. And until now, some people want to keep their sins on God's also. You cannot. He who sins is already departed from God. When we sin, actually, we have forgotten God. Verse 23, Therefore, God, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach. And I will explain breach, what does it mean? To turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So God wanted to destroy them. But who was their intercessor? Moses. And David did not forget to honor Moses here. Who with the spirit of compassion managed to turn away God's wrath from his people. Exodus 32 verse 9 and 10 record the remarkable words of, of God to Moses. Explaining that he would destroy the rebellious people of Israel and build the nation again through Moses. God said to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. God did not ask Moses for his opinion or any participation. God simply said to Moses, let me alone so I can do this. But Moses confronted God with intercession, seeking his mercy. Why he said in the breach, which breach here? So Moses was like a warrior who stand in the breach of the city wall to prevent the enemy at the risk of his life. So if there is a breach in the city wall, a warrior stand, so the enemy will not enter and he is risking his life. This shows the power and effectiveness of prayer. St. Athanasius said, while they murmured only for bread and water, he bore with them as a nurse with her foster child. God endured them. But when their madness reached such a pitch of wickedness, at this they were scourged. God actually wanted to destroy them. But as Moses was a mediator between God and the people of Israel, so Christ on the cross is mediator between God and his people. Then they despised the pleasant land. It's a promised land. They did not believe his word. So the psalmist now in verse 24 passes to the consideration of another sin. 
verse 24 referred to the Israelites sinful unbelief at Qadish Barnia. They did not believe the promise of God or the report of Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies. When Moses sent the twelve spies, two only told them, we can take this land. But the ten, the bad spies, said, no, we cannot take this land. So they believed the bad report of the other ten spies, and they despised the promised land. But St. Augustine says, but had they seen it, so they despised the land even without seeing it. Despised the land without seeing it. How then could they scorn that which they had not seen? Except at the following word explained, because they did not believe his word. So why they despised this land that they did not even see? Because they did not believe his word. St. Augustine continues, God rebukes their lack of faith in him who was leading them to major things. This promised land is a symbol of the highest Jerusalem. So God is leading us to heavenly Jerusalem through minor things, the promised land. And God gives them temporary things that they physically tested like promised land as a symbol for the heavenly Jerusalem. But they did not wait for his counsel. They did not wait for his counsel. They did not believe his word. Verse 25, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Now their unbelief, they did not believe, now became murmuring. So unbelief can easily lead to murmuring, which is great sin. Because murmuring contains within itself unbelief, pride, rebellion, and many other sins. And they did not heed the voice of the Lord. They disbelieved God's word and were disobedient to his command. Verse 26, Therefore he, God, raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the nets. What happened? God said, none of you, will, those who came out of the land of Egypt, none of them will enter the promised land. All of them died except Caleb and Joshua. And those who entered the promised land those who were born in the wilderness of Sinai. So God raised his hand in an oath that the generation of unbelief in the wilderness would not inherit the land of Canaan. That's why they lost their way in Sinai for 40 years. That generation would die in the wilderness and the new generation would have their opportunity to take the promised land by faith. The Israelites were punished, not merely by being carried into captivity, but by being completely broken up as a nation and scattered widely. So God did not deliver them into captivity, but all of them 
they died in the wilderness of Sinai. God lifted up his hand in the wilderness and swore there that he would disperse them among the heathen later on, the Assyrian, the Babylonians, and by the Romans. To offer them in the wilderness and to overthrow their descendants, their descendants who enter the promised land, he will overthrow them among the nations and to scatter them in the lands which happened in the Assyrian captivity and in the Babylonian captivity and by the hand of the Romans. We'll stop here at verse 27. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.